gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And... We decided to do an episode on the book, Gentle and Lowly. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard it being discussed probably in the last year, one of the most popular books in our circles that I've heard people talk about. Some people I think have heard of the book in the last few weeks for a couple of reasons. There's been two big controversies on social media. I've seen it uh, a lot on Twitter. I don't know how much... Uh, I don't know how much it's been on Facebook, although there was some posts in our Facebook group, I think, because of it. So the two controversies are, is empathy a sin? And the other one was regarding a very critical review of the book Gentle and Lowly. And a lot of people connected that that they really did kind of overlap these these controversies. So maybe you can talk about how that how they overlapped. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned that the book was uh, very popular and it's getting passed around a lot. And the the contrary side of my nature is usually like if a book is like really big and everyone's talking about it, I'm like, yeah, I'll wait to read it. Uh, for it just. Uh, the way it strikes me, I'm like, well, if everybody's reading it, then no. And it, and I want to say, there's nothing wrong with the author of the book. It was just that, yeah, okay, everyone's talking about it. So, yes, I, that's my rebel side right. coming out. Like even in when I was like young in junior high and high school, and everybody wanted to have the newest style, I absolutely didn't want to have that new style. Yeah. I was always kind of like, yeah. Uh, the first time a teacher said to me, oh, you ought to read Jane Austen. You'll love it. I was like, I'm never reading it for that reason. Yeah. Um, I was in college before I finally gave in and read Jane Austen. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until with, with Gentle and Lowly, it wasn't until my pastor uh, recommended it. He was talking about having read it and he was quoting from it. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Sounds like a really interesting book. I think I'll check it out. So I came into it like a little later, like people had already been talking about it for quite a while before I even read it. But yeah, there have been these two big controversies going on. Uh, the empathy as a sin controversy. I mean, that's, this is a rehash. Like it, it came back. Like it was, it's been what, 18 months? I think it was actually about a year ago. Cause I looked back to see when we talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. And I think it was like last spring. Or, or so, but I kind of feel like this recent controversy was a lot, like, it got on a lot more people's radar. It really did. Like, it was much bigger. Um, I was a little surprised because, you know, like you said, it, we've, we've done this recently, right? And, you know, it made a little splash. People talked about it some, but then it, it just didn't go, it didn't have legs, really. And But this last time, it really has <laughs> gone somewhere, and people are really talking about it a lot. So, there's this discussion going on, um, kind of a 
a controversial topic. You know, the sin of empathy is the the title of the the article that people are talking about, and several related articles. You know, with the discussion about it, you know, there's this back and forth. Like, is it? Did they really mean to say is empathy a sin? Are they just trying to be, you know, kind of a gotcha to get you to pay attention and listen? And we'll get into that in a minute about what what we think about empathy and how this focus has gone. But people then started connecting because right on the heels of the discussion uh, about empathy, there this re- review of Gentle and Lowly came out, and it was very critical. Uh, the review uh, basically took the approach that it was wrong to focus on on God's gentleness or Jesus' gentleness because it didn't balance uh, God's wrath and judgment, um, which may be an oversimplification of the the criticism, but that's what I've gathered in reading through it. But some people noticed, and I think it's it is a a correct connection. This connection between how we view empathy and how we view Jesus and how we view God and compassion and gentleness and these characteristics and whether or not what we should be, we be what we should be pursuing as Christians, how we should be treating each other, what uh, qualities are or should we should we expect from leaders and men and you know all of these discussions and i think that they're right that there really is a connection between all of these ideas and concepts like how you view one will inf- influence how you view the other and I, I even think about the things that we've talked about with masculinity and where there's prince going okay um where where gentleness and kindness and those sorts of things are feminine traits. And then masculine right. traits are being strong and hunting and, you know, those sorts of things. And where they're almost taking their ideas on masculinity and um, putting them onto Jesus. So then you can't have this gentle and lowly Jesus because that those are feminine qualities. Well, but that's that's it. And in fact, I had a conversation it was a Twitter thread and someone said that, you know, those, those qualities, they were, you know, tongue in cheek. Well, those, those qualities must not be, you know, real, um, you know, good Christian qualities to pursue. I'm like, Oh no, no, those, you know, also tongue in cheek. Yes. Those are things that we're supposed to pursue, but those are for women. Right. right. And, and it is tongue in cheek, but it is, you know, it's what we've talked about, what we've seen. And, you know, when we talked about empathy the last time, uh, we should link that one in the notes, but when we talked about it last time, we talked about both empathy and servant leadership as qualities that Christ um, exemplifies, right? That he is gentle, he is lowly, he he has empathy uh, for us as as his people. Um, And I do think that when you attack empathy, when you uh, question the the masculinity of gentleness and lowliness, it is an attack on who Christ is and what he has done for us and his very nature. Yeah. And we, I will link our episode where we talked specifically, focused specifically on whether empathy is a sin. And one of the things when they say, oh, you know, it's focusing too much on this and not enough on this. You know, I don't ever hear those same people complain when there's a huge focus on the wrath of God. Well, wait, you need to balance it with Jesus' gentleness, you know? Right. And we, I think more often than not, um, there's focus on some of those other at- attributes. Well, and, you know, we'll get to this as we talk about it a little more, but I, in the, in the book, in the second chapter of gentle and lowly, um, the author, uh, Dane Ortland speaks very specifically to this issue, right? He's, he addresses it. There are many times when I read a review of a book that I've read, um, or the, a book that I've written. And I wonder whether or not the person who's reviewing it 
really read it. Yep. <laughs> I thought about that with some of the reviews. Especially like, did when they read it's so or, like, did you read, did we read the same book? <laughs> oh, you it? know what? My, my cousin went one day and read reviews of our podcast and there is a <laughs> lot of good reviews, but I think there was a coordinated effort to go and put some negative reviews. And he called me, he said, have they ever even listened? <laughs> I said, probably not. <laughs> some of those bad reviews. But I, I think that, I think you're right. Even if they read it, they were reading it specifically with a certain glasses on. Yeah. Where uh, other times I've been convinced that people had a particular idea about what it was going to be like. And then they just, that's what they found. You went into it thinking about it one way and they were looking for it and that's what they find in it. But especially with this, with the, the charges about these not focusing, not balanced with God's wrath, the author addresses it like very upfront, very early on. And, you know, so then, I, then you wonder, I'm like, why, why not take what he says, you know, and understand his point here? Yeah. And I, I want to mention, and I'll link this in the episode notes. I think Doctrine and Devotion did an excellent episode um, going through that critical article. And it's worth listening to if, if you want to hear more specifically on that. They, they just did an excellent job. Cause one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is sometimes a tendency to assume the worst. And instead of saying, hmm, I'm not sure what you mean there. Right. Um, maybe I'll ask that question. It's, oh, well, I disagree with that. I'm going to assume the very worst about what you meant. I mean, we have to read with discernment, right? And we have to take into consideration, you know, who someone is and why they're writing it, when, what their approach is, what they, what their agenda or bias. And I don't mean those terms unkindly, just we all have, you know, a point of view. Um, that should all be part of what we do when we read someone. But you're right. It, it's important that we, um, listen for what they're saying. Uh, it's like the, my dad, when he was preaching, often get to a point and said, now don't hear what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying. That's a great way to put it. You know, I am saying these things, right? You know, it's just, I get the number of times I think, now don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not that. It is this. But I thought that in Gentle and Lowly that Dane did an excellent job of addressing it that way. Of, don't hear me. I'm not saying these things. I am saying these other things. He was careful to qualify and to to speak biblically um, with good orthodox teaching about Jesus and about God and how they, the Father and the Son relate to us and the Spirit relate to us as believers. Let's talk first just about empathy. Yeah, let's let's talk about empathy and why it is biblical. And in the discussions about whether empathy is a sin, there's a lot of kind of uh, creative mm, explanations going on, sometimes a redefining of empathy. One of the things that there's almost like, well, empathy can be misused or, okay, yeah, it, Almost anything can be misused. We don't do away with it, you know. What is it? The well, the abuse of a thing doesn't negate the correct use. Yes, that's exactly that the, it. That's I'm butchering the quote, but I think of, and I know you have examples of this too, Rachel. Whether you're suffering and a friend's love for you, they empathize. I mean, that to me like means the most to me and when someone shows empathy and when I'm going through something difficult and someone cries with me, um, it's a way that I see their love for me. Well, it is. And, you know, this is a lot of what we're going to talk about here is, is from an article that I wrote um, for core Christianity, the Christian virtue of empathy. And it, in the article, I don't, specifically address the controversy. I don't link to it, but it was in, in response, right? That was on my mind as I was writing it. And one of the things that I mentioned in it is that, you know, I had 
been scrolling through Twitter and I'd seen a post from someone uh, who I don't know personally who had lost a baby, a miscarriage, right? And my heart went out to her because I know what it is to lose a child, right? And I could feel, understand what she's feeling because I've been there, right? I can empathize with her because I know what it is to, to have that feeling, right? And what has bothered me a lot about the discussions is that you talked about there's redefinition or calling this and saying, well, you know, I was talking about empathy, but this, this is how I was defining empathy. Or it really was very much uh, like moving the goalposts, right? So you start to have the discussion and say, well, okay, but empathy is a good thing. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, that, you're right. But we're actually talking about this thing over here. But it was constantly, it's like a moving target. So, And you have to be really careful because some people in some circles do this sort of thing a lot. Right. If you're going to say something as controversial as the sin of empathy, then you need to be ready for the blowback that that's going to receive. Right. So looking at it biblically, starting from the point of Romans 12 verses 15 and 16, where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, be of the same mind towards another, one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That is a call for us to enter into the feelings, the emotions of someone else, right? To reflect back what they are feeling. And that is empathy. That is exactly what empathy is and what it means. You know, as you were talking about seeing that person on Twitter that you didn't even know and, you know, feeling their pain because you know what it's like. And I had an experience like that um, just um, this last weekend where I saw somebody that I didn't even know, a, a girl in our Facebook group, telling about her friend dying from cancer. Try to say this without crying. I understand. And I just started weeping you know, and I, I was thinking, and because we have a very dear friend um, that's fighting stage four cancer, I've lost a few close friends, too many, to cancer. And my mother-in-law, and even though my dad had all sorts of things, he also had cancer. And I think of Second Corinthians one four, which says that that talks about how he comforts us in our in our troubles in our suffering so that we can comfort others and i do think that's one way that we do that is you can you can empathize with the woman who lost a baby in a specific way because you've experienced it and offer comfort a certain comfort that maybe somebody that hasn't been through it. I mean, we can empathize with people even if we haven't been through it, but we can empathize in a very specific way if we've suffered that thing ourselves. And and the Lord in Scripture says that we can comfort others because we have been comforted by the Lord. Second Corinthians 2, that's where you're headed. Yes, Second Corinthians, that. yeah, it's in Second Corinthians 1. Did I forget to say that, sir? Yeah. Um, I always, I always, always forget funny. if it's first or second, so that's why I have to look it up real quick. And and we see that this is not only are we told that in the verses that Rachel just um, just read, but also we see that Christ demonstrated that. I mean, even if you just think about um, when Lazarus died, as one example. Right. It's funny because that my boys are memorizing. Yeah, it's Second uh, Corinthians two. Uh, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three and four. And I have my older boys memorizing that right now. Right, and it's. Such a beautiful passage. It's, it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may able be be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And comfort is five times in that passage. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Wendy Elsop, you know, that's a, if you haven't heard our episode with her mm. about her book, that's another wonderful book. You know, talks about. Um, even how if you've suffered anything, you know, you can understand someone that's suffering, even if it's a different thing. So sometimes even if it's not that ex exact thing, you 
you know yourself what it's like to suffer. We do. We all know what it is to suffer because we know that's what it is to be human, right? Life is yeah. suffering and pain. Even the good things, right? It just it's Yeah. It's always tempered with with pain and sorrow. And that's that's life, right? So while there have been discussions about the definition of empathy, um, the actual dictionary definition of empathy, uh, it's a combination of two Greek words, M and pathos. Together it means in feeling, so feeling in, the de- uh, as compared to sympathy, which means with feeling, so feeling with someone. Um, one dictionary definition, empathy is a person's ability to recognize and share the emotions of another person, fictional character, or sentient being. It, it involves seeing someone else's situation from his perspective and sharing his emotions, including, if any, his distress, right? So, or her distress. That is empathy. And that is the definition that we all know of as empathy. That is not, it's not a trick question. What is empathy? This is a concept. And while the term itself is is newer, um, the term empathy started in use in the 1900s. It is a concept that's much older. Um, in scripture, we see it uh, in compassion. We see it uh, in sympathy. We see it in, um, in specific examples in how Christ behaves or what we are called to. Um, I love the passage in the Westminster Larger Catechism. When it's a question about uh, why the, our mediator had to be man. And it talks about him, you know, he had to be able to obey for us and suffer and intercede for us. But it mentions that he had to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. And I don't know of any better way to put a fellow feeling than empathy. Like that's, that is, that's what it's talking about. He understands our infirmities because of his human nature, because of his suffering and living as a human. And it's comforting knowing that. That Christ understands our suffering. He does, right? And he talked about, we see it um, in John 11 when he raises Jesus from, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, what happens, right? He's there, he arrives, he arrives late on purpose, right? This is all, you know, in God's plan for uh, God's glory, for the announcement of, of, Jesus's kingdom for the people to believe and understand who he is and why he's there. And he arrives, he knows that Lazarus is dead. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And when he meets up with Mary and Martha and the, the mourners, what does he do? He cries. Right. He weeps. He knows mm-hmm. what he's about to do. He knows the suffering is almost over. He could have said, Hey, chill out. I got this. Right. Obviously, Jesus would not be so flippant, right. but he could have been, he could have been very harsh with them and, and said, Well, you know, get over it. It's fine. You know about the resurrection. Why are you crying? But he enters into their suffering and weeps with them because yes. death is sad. Separation is sad. And, this is what we are called to. We are called to empathize with those around us, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, thinking of the concept of empathy, there was a discussion in the Facebook group and one of our girls from the Ukraine said, can somebody explain this word empathy to me? Another girl from the Ukraine came in and um if I'm remembering correctly, they didn't have a word for word translation, but she explained the concept to her. Oh, and then she was like, okay, I understand now. And so even prior to us having that word, that concept was there. Just in these passages that you're reading, Rachel, that concept mm-hmm. is there. The concept is there because it is a legitimate concept from scripture about how we are to treat each other. And even in the, the debates, you, know, you start getting into these passages like, oh, yes, yes, yes. We, we know. Yes, we agree. Those are good things. I'm like, so then what exactly are we, are you doing? Right. Why are you fighting against empathy when you see so clearly that it is in scripture, that this is who Christ is and what we're called to? Right. Um, 
You know, for example, <clears throat> Hebrews four fifteen, talking about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Right? And yes, it uses the word sympathy there, not empathy. But the concept is still the same. He can sympathize. He can empathize with us in our weakness because he knows what it is to suffer and to be tempted. He has experienced the same struggles that we are in, of course, without sin. Well, and I think a lot of times when we think about empathy, we think of, um, you know, crying with somebody, but it's also rejoice with those who rejoice, not, you know, so, you know, I'm, you've celebrated with somebody before you're happy. Even when it's not the way you feel about it, right? Like I was thinking about one of the things that, was said in these discussions is it was called um, that it's called an emotional blackmail, right? To have someone feel what you're feeling, right? Or to expect someone to feel what you're feeling. But, you know, like you said, it's not just about weeping with those who weep. When, after I lost um, my daughter, after Beth Ann was stillborn, um, two of my close friends at church were expecting both of them were further along than I was. And so they were due to deliver like any day um, shortly after Beth Ann was born. And when my, my dear friend had her daughter and I went back to the same hospital that I had delivered in and I, I was with her and I hugged her and I was happy with her and I rejoiced with her, even though my heart was breaking over the thought of not having and holding my child, I was still happy for her and her happiness. Right. And it was the right thing to do to rejoice with her yeah. at that moment. Right. So, yes, we are called to feel what our loved ones, what believers around us are feeling as we, as we work with them and live with them and celebrate and mourn with them. Like, this is what we're called to. I often think of a, a sermon years ago that our pastor did on the Ten Commandments. And, you know, sometimes those sermons that just stick with you. Yes. Uh, it was one of those, especially one part. He was talking about coveting. And um, I wish I had this on, I probably have it on cassette somewhere. He talked about, um, you know, we're not, obviously not to covet, but instead rejoice um, that the Lord has blessed this person rejoice with them instead that really that really helped me to think of it that way because sometimes i feel jealousy or i covet and to instead be be grateful thank god that the lord has blessed that person whatever that thing is that maybe i feel you know like i want yeah yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it isn't easy. And I did, I, my eyes filled up with tears and I was, it was hard to do. And she knew, right? She knew it was hard. I wouldn't well, have wanted her not to have her child just because I didn't have mine, right? That's that I, uh, I was very happy for her, um, even in my own sadness. But, um, one of the hardest things I ever did was go to the hospital. Um, a couple months after I lost my baby to see my friend and her baby and very much, you know, how you're describing. It is hard, but I was glad I did it later. I was glad that I had been there and, and, you know, she was there with me and was at, at the service and funeral. And so she had, she was weeping with me and I was rejoicing with her. And, you know, that's what it is to be, you know, sisters in Christ. I've I've heard the same thing from um, a couple of single friends um, with going to a wedding. Another wedding is, you know, that they they still hurt that they haven't found somebody and they aren't getting married, but being able to rejoice with their friend. So we want to talk about gentleness. You know, we gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. It's not a, and women should be gentle. That verse doesn't exist in Scripture. It's actually fruit of the Spirit. Right. And something Christ displayed. It is. Uh, It is something that all believers are called to. Um, 
it is a word that uh, Christ used to describe himself. Um, the, in, uh, in my book, in the chapter when I talk about um, you know, some of the, both the nature of men and women, and then also a lot of the stereotypes that are taught about uh, what men and women are called to and the virtues and et cetera. Um, I talk about the gentleness for men because it is often in our circles and in conservative circles that gentleness is considered a feminine characteristic. And in, it's just, that's not a biblical way of thinking about it. Um, in scripture, the word that we ch- translate gentle or gentleness is also sometimes translated meek uh, or hum- uh, humble, humility. Um, and I think one of the dictionary Bible dictionaries uses uh, strength under control for the definition, right? Um, it's unfortunate in English that meek and weak sound similar because they have no similarity in actual meaning. Uh, meekness is not weakness. Um, meekness, humility, gentleness, uh, all of them include this concept of strength under control. Dealing with um, and interacting with the um, the review of of Dane Ortland's book, gentleness can include godly gentleness can include righteous anger, right? And this is where um, you see it in Moses, uh, Moses who is described as humble and gentle and meek in Scripture. He uh, was so angry when he came down off. Uh, the Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. And he comes down and the people are uh, worshiping idols and uh, disobeying God flagrantly. And he's angry and he shatters the ta- the tablets. Right? And it talks about his anger. Uh, and similarly, uh, in Matthew 21, when Jesus enters the temple and he drives out the um, money changers and overturns the tables and you know, cleanses the temple. It, it's it's a zealous, righteous anger for God's glory and for uh, the holiness of of our worship for God of God, but also you know in in protecting his sheep from these people who were stealing and taking advantage and harming and and preventing his people from coming to worship, right? That all of that is, is what's happening in this scene, right? But even in all of that, both Moses and Jesus are rightly described as gentle, as meek, as humble. And that's not a contradiction. Yeah, I think this is so, so important. Um, in these discussions these last few weeks, somebody said that they thought some people think they've been called to be Jesus in the temple turning over the tables in every part of their lives or something like that. One of the things, even when we think about our own behavior uh, and how we do it, uh, there are times like we are to call out bad doctrine and things like that, and we still should do it in a gentle way Mm -hmm. um, with humility. We should. Um, You know, the several passages in scripture that talk about um, gentleness and how we are to treat each other. Um, Philippians four, let your gentle spirit be known to all people Um, in the, of course the fruit of the spirit includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in the um, description of qualities that qualifications for elders, it says um, that he should be not a bully, but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. Right. So you see that that idea that calling is for all believers and especially for our leaders. The book itself, as we get into gentle and lowly, what he's basing we're uh, or, or working off of is the passage. It's my favorite passage, uh, the one that I quote. If you follow me on, on Twitter every Sunday, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, which says, Come to me, Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke 
is easy and my burden is light. Right? That, that is the passage that the whole of Dane Ortland's book seeks to apply, to understand, to address. And from the very beginning, I'm going to quote uh, from the intro when he talks about who the book is for. And he says, the book is for, the book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. Uh, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up this bad again? It is for those, It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us but suspect we have dis- deeply disappointed Him, who have told others of the love of Christ yet wonder if, as for us, He harbors mild resentment. Right. This is who he wrote it for. And given the, the difficulties of the last year for most of us, right? Many of us have had a very difficult time this last year. This feeling of frustration, cynicism, emptiness, um, this feeling of worrying that we have disappointed God to the point that he couldn't possibly love us, right? This is something I think that makes this book so very timely. Right? This is why the book is so popular, has had such an audience, had such reaction this year. Uh, it, it was it's just a great timing for the book because so many of us are hurting and so many of us are worried and wondering about God's attitude towards us. Yeah, I, I saved it, one of the quotes and because I thought it also kind of summarized some of what he talks about. It says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms and lowly. And what a good reminder that I think a lot of us need right now. In short, Jesus, as God, God is not like us, right? We, right. Good thing. <laughs> we are uh, quick to anger, slow to forgive. We are uh, suspicious and cynical and harsh and unloving, right? And, and our patience runs out so quickly. But his is not that way, right? He is long-suffering, right? Slow to anger abounding in in loving kindness and compassion he is love right he is merciful and forgiving and the purpose of his book of ortland's book is to comfort and encourage suffering believers and i think that is the point right there that's who it's for and who the audience is and what the point is that this is why the uh, criticism of his book for not focusing on the wrath of God is so misguided. Because the criticism is misguided, and it is because for the believer, those of us who are who are repentant, who are um, have put our faith in Christ, who have publicly proclaimed you know that that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, you know the one that that we have put our trust in. For those of us who are repentant believers, the question is, what is God's heart? What is Christ's heart for us? And Ortland responds that it is gentle and lowly. Um, And he says, this is who he, Christ, is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. This is who... God is. This is who Christ is towards us. And it made me think of the verse from Isaiah 42 that talks about a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Right? We are those bruised reeds, and we are those dimly burning wicks. We are believers who are suffering. And he is not there 
like you, you quoted, Colleen, with that pointing finger and that stern harshness towards us. How dare you? He is there with open, loving arms, ready to receive us and comfort us. I think uh, a lot of people, at least in my experience, uh, struggle with seeing Jesus as gentle and lowly. That that pointed finger quote stuck out to me mm-hmm. because um, from a psychological perspective, there there's a lot of studies that our view of God is is often connected to um, our relationship with our fathers. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, someone will say, "Well, I just see God as pointing his finger at me and angry with me all the time." And sometimes I'll say, "So tell me about your dad." <laughs> They'll literally describe their dad as exactly how they were seeing Jesus. That's why I think this is so important, because sometimes there's a lot of people that struggle with that God is just always there accusing and pointing his finger and angry. You know, I feel like God's just always angry with me, you know, and and they struggle to see the gentle and lowly Jesus. But we need to remember, right, that, you know, yes, God's um, anger against sin and his wrath um, is is not like he doesn't he doesn't go back and forth on his emotions. So first he's wrathful and then he's merciful. It's it's all the time, right? He is always merciful. He is always loving. He is also always angry at sin, right? And a jealous God. These things are always true all the time of God. But for those of us who are believers. For those of us who Christ's death and resurrection, that uh, we've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection, then God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. And we don't have a reason to fear anymore. We ha- There is no coming judgment for us that will punish us for our sin um, because our sins have been paid for and covered. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be times in our lives when we disobey and there may be consequences, right? That, th- that happens. But in talking about eternally, there is no coming eternal judgment where all of our sin is going to be dredged forth and God's going to say, well, look at all this horrible stuff that you've done, right? That's, that's not it. That's not what we have. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's sacrifice and he sees Christ's righteousness and we are covered and we have nothing to fear. Yeah, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. From Romans 5, uh, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Right? We we have been set free, and part of what we are free from is this freedom from fear. And it is not from God when we begin to fear and be afraid of, of our relationship with Him and of coming to Him. And God calls us to come. He wants us to come. He is loving and gentle and forgiving. And one of the things I absolutely loved about Dane's book was the constant um, reorienting of our thoughts through Scripture, through what the Bible says about God and how He treats us in Christ and how He loves us, and and reorienting our thinking so that we see Him correctly. And our narrow and... Um, Say, use an old term, mean views of God. Not that he is mean, but our right. where we demean him in our views, right? Our short-sightedness in viewing him should not color our relationship with him. And we need to reorient our thinking. For me, and I'm going to try to get through this without crying. <laughs> okay. for, for me in reading this book, I came to it... Um really struggling. Really struggling, not that I doubt that God loves me, not that I doubt that He uh, has saved me and that He provides and He cares, but struggling with His goodness and how how I can trust in that. 
despite very difficult circumstances. And reading this book, it was, uh, it was balm. It was water on dry per- parched land. Right? It was what I needed to hear and to think on and to remember. Yeah. I, I thought that that same thing um, with something that I've been going through, that's really hard. Not, not anything I'm going to talk publicly about, but where one night because of these discussions, because of this book and I was reminded of, of God's goodness and that I could trust in that, even in the midst of very difficult things that feel hopeless, that I can trust in his goodness and his love. And, you know, this. there's so many things, Rachel, like you said, of course, you know, God loves you and he cares for you and all of those things. And, and we know those things, but th- being reminded of who He is and His goodness and His gentleness and His love for us and what that love for us looks like. Sometimes I forget. I need to be reminded. Um, early on in the book, uh, Dane talks about from the verse that His yoke is easy, right? And what that means. Um, he says that Christ's yoke is a non-yoke. His burden is a non-burden. It says, What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace, it is his very heart. It was passages like that. It about broke me (laughs) to read, but um, in a good way. Yeah. In scripture, you see in how Jesus interacted with people on when he was here, um, you see his compassion on the people around him, especially on the sinners around him. He heals, he feeds, he forgives. Um, It's, just a pouring out of of gentleness and compassion on those around him. You know, I did want to say, again, as I mentioned earlier uh, or before, that uh, in the controversy, in the um, the critical review of of gentle and lowly, it one of the things that it addressed or said is that um, that Dane didn't give enough balance to. Uh, God's wrath, Jesus' uh, wrath, and and as I said, Dane does address that in the second chapter um, very specifically. Uh, he he's like he kind of pauses for a second and says, "Okay, going to deal with this." So um, I'm going to read this quote because I think he he answers it better than my summary would be of it. So here's what he said. He says, first, the wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the other is held up. Rather, the two rise and fall together. The more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all that is evil, both around us and within us, the more robust our felt understanding of his mercy. Second, in speaking specifically of the heart of Christ, and the heart of God in the Old Testament, we are not really on the wrath-mercy spectrum anyway. His heart is his heart. When we speak of Christ's heart, we are not so much speaking of one attribute alongside others. We are asking who most deeply is, what pours out of him most naturally. Third, we are simply seeking to follow the biblical witness in speaking of Christ's heart of affection towards sinners and sufferers. In other words, if there appears to be some sense of disproportion in the Bible's portrait of Christ, then let us be accordingly disproportionate. Better to be biblical than to be artificially balanced. And he goes on to say, It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. Yeah, and I really liked that that quote mm-hmm. a lot. I had I have a lot of highlighted quotes, <laughs> but I think it's important. You know, this when we're talking again, we are talking about a book written to believers, right? So we are already aware of our sin. We are already 
aware that God's wrath has been poured out on Christ for us, and we are already united to Christ, and we are in a position as adopted sons and daughters. Right? This is who we are. And so the the words that he is giving here, the the encouragement and the reminders that he's giving here are addressed to those people who are God's people, who are called by his name, and who are loved by him. And that is a different picture than you would give to someone who is not a believer, who is not, uh, who is, you know, actively, angrily, contrary to Christ and to God. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's different because of our relationship with Christ and our relationship to God through Christ. You kind of talked about this earlier um, about the wrath of God. You know, I, one of the things I just wanted to say real quick about the, the section that you mm-hmm. you just read in the critical review in general is some of the very things that that review said were addressed in the book. And I, I love this little quote, that this end of that quote you just read, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, or exaggerated. I love that. Well, we can't talk too much. It, it makes me think a little bit about the people who accuse antinomianism, where like, well, if you emphasize too much God's free grace, then people are just going to go out and disobey. Yeah. You know, if you mention that too much the Christ is gentle and lowly, they're going to forget the wrath of God, you know? It's the same sort of thing, and it's 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 not a thing. Right. In talking through, when you go through the book and read what he's written, and we highly recommend it, get the book, read it, listen to it. The audio book is fabulous. Um, strongly recommend. Great book to give to others. Uh, so that's my plug for it. But one of the things he talks about is when we talk about Christ's heart and uh, being gentle and lowly, um, he, he points out this is not a um, contrast. Christ and his love is not a contrast to like the God of the Old Testament. Like you know, some people see, you know, the God of the New Testament's loving, gentle, generous, but the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and angry. You know, that's that is not a reformed view of Scripture at all. And he points out that from the Old Testament moving forward, you can see how. Christ's love for us is shown to us in the Old Testament. It's shown to us in how the Spirit works in our lives. It's shown to us in how the Father loves us, and it's shown to us from Scripture, right? And so let me kind of give you an idea of what, what Dane has done here in, in the in the book. Um, like Colleen mentioned, this is what Dane says, one way to understand the purpose of this study of Christ's heart is that it is an attempt to make our mental image of God, of who God is, more accurate. I'm seeking to help us leave behind our natural fallen intuitions that God is distant and parsimonious and to step into the liberating realization that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And he says that it's common for Christians to think that the Father is less inclined to love and forgive than the Son, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And so he points to us and points to Scripture and says that uh, God, the Father, is the Father of mercies. It's to say He is the one who multiplies compassionate mercies to His needful, wayward, messy, falling, wandering people. So to correctly understand God is not that it's that there's the Father who is generally angry and wants to judge and pour out wrath and the son who is love, but both father and the son and the spirit together is, is a heart of redeeming love. And that this is the heart of God that you see throughout all of scripture. Yeah. Even if you just think of Genesis and, um, and the promise of a son that would save his people because of his love for us. And his mercy in giving them clothing, right? Yes. And providing for them immediately, right? It It is always a compassionate, loving father relationship, right? He, it is always what he shows us. And um, 
some of the passages here. I'm going to quote some of the ones that Dane brings up in the book. Um, Exodus 34, when, uh, when Moses asks to see uh, God's glory, and so then the Lord passes in front of him and says, uh, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. Right? This is who he is, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in forgiveness, faithfulness and truth. In Deuteronomy 7, um, this is when God tells his people, he's like, he didn't pick them because they were the biggest group or um, for anything special in them as a people, but that it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers. And it says that he is faithful, keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations. Um, in Isaiah, it says, For the mountains may be moved and the hills may shake, but my favor will not be removed from you, nor my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And there are many others. I, I love the picture um, in uh, Ezekiel, I think, where uh, God compares Israel to this child that he found abandoned and he he clothed, cleaned it and clothed it and raised it and loved it. And, you know, this, this image of him as loving and gentle and forgiving and gracious, it is, it is who God is. And it is the picture that we see throughout the Old Testament as well as the New. Yeah. Think of Hosea. Um, and that, and that picture, even when we're unfaithful, he loves us. One of my favorite passages, um, in, the giving of the law as they're going into the land, God says, and this is a paraphrase, but God says, you know, if you keep my commandments, then all of these good things will happen. If you don't keep my commandments, then all these bad things will happen. And the third part of it is, and when you don't keep my commandments, <laughs> and when you have done all, all these bad things have come on you, then I will redeem you. Right? It, it's there immediately. This promise that he was going to be faithful because he loves us. And, you, you know, um, I, I'm i thinking in my head just as you're talking about Psalms, the psalmist knew mm -hmm. these things about God, that God was loving and forgiving and kind. Mm -hmm. And then when you move into the New Testament, uh, Ephesians 2 describes us being dead in our offenses and sin. And then it says, starting in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful passage. I, I love that whole chapter. Those words, but God, like the whole yes. thing turns, <laughs> but God. Being rich in mercy. You know, you know these passages, but sometimes there's section of, of them that kind of hit you in a certain way. Uh, Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, it says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it says, if we were while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Right? We, it's not just that we have escaped God's wrath by the skin of our teeth, and now he's still just waiting to get us, right? That we're going to step one foot out of line, and that's it. We are, we have been saved, and in order to, live a life that glorifies him and he provides that for us and he we live in the celebration of that life now dane says the gospel is the invitation to let the heart of christ calm us into joy for we've already been discovered included brought in we can bring our up and down moral performance into subjection to the settled fixedness of what jesus feels about us one of the passages that i i thought uh, one of the chapters that I really enjoyed in the book, uh, Dane deals with 
uh, that we are Christ's body. As we said, we've been united to him through the spirit. And, you know, how does Christ treat his own body? Dane points out that Jesus Christ is closer to you, to us today, than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. It says, Christ is the head, and we are his own body parts. How does he feel about his own flesh? The Apostle Paul tells us he nourishes and cherishes it. And then Paul makes the explicit connection to Christ, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And how do we care for a wounded body part? We nurse it, bandage it, protect it, give it time to heal. For that body part isn't just a close friend, it's part of us. So with Christ and believers, we are a part of him. So again, in that reorienting of our thoughts towards God, towards Christ and his love for us, as believers, we have been united to him through, by the Spirit, and we are his body. And he cares for us like the same care that we give to our body parts. And so when we're hurting, he cares and he nurtures, nurtures us and cares for us and loves us, heals us, right? We, he protects us. And this kind of connects back to the empathy thing when we think about that we are united to Christ and that we're each united to Christ and caring for one another. We are. Um, and that's where, again, I love the way Dane addresses the concerns and the um, the fears that we have as believers, the the ways in which we're afraid that we're not measuring up, and that you know God can't love us because we're not lovely and worth loving. Uh, he says towards the end, uh, he says, if you are in Christ. And only a soul in Christ would be troubled at offending him. Your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God any more than history itself can be undone. The hardest part has been accomplished. God has already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness. And he did that while you were an orphan. Nothing can now unchild you, not even you. If you think about adoption, and I think, I can't remember which episode we talked about it on, but... Um, when, you know, my husband was adopted, he is a sharp, you know, they, they don't, his parents aren't going to divorce him, you know, that that's not a thing. Um, when we, we are the Lord's, we've been adopted. And he won't ever lose any of us. He promises that. Right. And I keep thinking of the passage, you know, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. As he says, not even ourselves. Right. Um, <laughs> That's pr- I mean, really, if, yeah. if we could jump out of his grace, if we could jump out of his arms, we would, right? That That's who we are. That's how we obey or disobey, right? That's that's left up to us. That's what we would be like. But that's not, it's not left up to us. He's the one who holds us. Yes, that that is the thing that has just been so comforting for me um, is remembering that right there. And that's where the reminder, you know, it's not the quality of our faithfulness, but the object of our faith, right? Yes, amen. It's not how well we hold on to him. It's that he is faithful. Um, And, of course, we're not encouraging anyone to go out and sin boldly, right? It's it's not the point. But, again, most of us, as we're, we're living our lives and working, we're struggling with are we doing enough? Are we serving him well enough? How we're struggling with the ways in which we know we failed. And we tend to get this jaundiced view of who God is and his love for us because we would give up on people who are as faithless as we are, right? That's, that's just the way we are, right? But he is not like us. He is not like us. Um, I, I really loved, I quoted this, as a quote on Twitter from the book, um, Ortland interacts with several different uh, the Puritan authors, and he quotes from John Bunyan at one point. And so quoting from Bunyan, he says, He, God, he'll love to the end, to the end of their lives, to the end of their sins, to the end of their temptations, to the end of their fears. 
No, I'm, I'm thinking too, just about us being children of God, reflecting on that. There is nothing, nothing whatsoever that any of my children could do to change my love for them. They are still my child. And God's love for us is even greater. Pure, more faithful. Yes. <laughs> Again, my encouragement is if you're struggling, read this book. If you're not struggling, read this book. <laughs> Just- <laughs> yeah, everyone... We all suffer, whether it's a bad day or a bad year. Um, I wanted to mention, too, that there is a podcast um, that it doesn't have a ton of episodes, and they're really short um, based on this book. So I'll link that in the episode notes, too, because if if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of time to read, Rachel mentioned the audiobook. I had bought the book for my mom for Christmas. And then, um, then I got the Kindle version for myself, but the audiobook is a great idea too. Uh, it's not a long book. Yeah. I'm going to recommend that to, to my husband because mm-hmm. he, in his commute, he does a lot of audiobooks just because he has time on his commute. And it's read by the author. So you get to hear his voice. It's always fun to me to get to hear the author. Well, we're going to link everything we talked about, including, uh, what Rachel wrote for Core Christianity about empathy, because um, I think that's really helpful in the empathy discussion. We will, I think that's everything. Mm-hmm. So we will see you next week.